Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hello and welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Adrian here. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Can't do it without you. Today on the show, we have David Colwell from the UK, Wales in fact. David's a designer, designed all sorts of things very passionately and he has some very strong ideas about what makes good design and what makes bad design. We talk a lot about aesthetics, of course, and we talk a lot about what he's been up to over his design career, which has been extensive. He's designed boats and furniture and houses and all sorts of things. Really great conversation. Love talking to David. Hope you enjoy listening to it. Take it away, David. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Yes, we've just... Um, That's great. We've had these uh, few... Days which have been like high summer. Yeah, right. Absolutely wonderful. Today is not quite so bright, but um, I'm in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, <laughs> which um, for this part of the globe is not bad. It's pretty good, isn't it? Good. You know why, though, David? What's that? You know why? Because it's global warming. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be in shorts and a t-shirt for pretty much the rest of your life. It could be, but it's also, but well, curiously enough, it hasn't produced. It hasn't produced good summers, by and large. Oh, right. It's, um, although it's been warmer in winter and a great deal wetter. Yeah. But it hasn't, the last two summers have been, have, they've, they've both had a similar thing to this, which is an unexpectedly early spring hot period. In fact, last year it was in February, and it was, um, it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, that it is spring proper, and it's absolutely glorious. But in both cases, by the end of June, it was pretty, you know, it was all, it was mm. all over, really. Of course, the other thing that could well happen to us in the longer term, probably not in my lifetime, though, is, uh, is, is the Gulf Stream reversing. Mm. And at which point this will be very, very cold, yeah. because we are... Oh gosh! Uh, you know, if you take our latitude and run it up north, you're sort of somewhere through the middle of Canada. Mm. You know, yeah. fifty-two degrees north. Yeah, Norway, it's, isn't uh, it? Yeah, it, it, it's a long way, and, it, and yeah. the climate that we have is in is totally dependent on the Gulf Stream. Mm. And having recently been in Maine, which I was, I was there in May last year, and the sea's been frozen, and you know, it's been extraordinary. But that is more or less level with Madrid. <sighs> yeah. And, that, and this because of the Gulf Stream. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly level with 
level with northern Spain. Uh, and it's cold there. You know, it really is cold. Yeah. At, at the right, you know, so I've never been anywhere where the sea's been frozen before. No. Is that likely to happen, the Gulf Stream failing? Well, the, um, it is a strong possibility because mm. I'm not quite sure exactly what happened, but it, it, it revolves around in an anti-clockwise direction coming up the coast of Europe, then across the Arctic, and then down the coast of Canada and Maine. Mm. In northern Northern America, Northern USA, and it is it's a completely different climate. Obviously, because you know what's coming down is, you know, it, it's not very far north of, of Maine. You get icebergs, yeah. and yet, as I say, that is it's um, that's it's way south of here. So, I've read, I haven't remembered much about it, but there's a fairly strong possibility that if the if the ice melts and introduces more cold water that it may overcome the the Gulf Stream. Mm. And it could even start going the other way rather mm. than this way. Uh, it is quite a strong possibility. And it, and it has happened before. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't. Let's hope it doesn't. Let's hope it doesn't. But that's, that is the big danger as far as Britain is concerned. Yeah. Mm. Agriculture being the poo, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Did you get any Easter eggs, David? It being at Easter no, I didn't. Sunday. No, not whatever. How about you? Um, no, I'm, um, I'm living really. on my own. Um, oh, are you? I, and the kids are somewhere else, and my wife is somewhere else, and I have absolutely nothing except a cup of coffee. I haven't even got a I haven't got a square of chocolates even in the house. I was thinking that first thing this morning, actually. I should have bought myself one. <laughs> yeah, you totally should have. So where are you living now? Yeah, in Adelaide. Okay. Australia. Yep. Very nice too. I liked Adelaide. Yeah, Adelaide's a nice place. It's a really good place I to bet. live. Except in summertime. You don't want to come in summertime. It's too hot. All right. Yeah, we need a bit of Arctic weather down here in summertime. Just cool the state. Really? Oh, really? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's incredibly hot right now, is it? No, not right now. No, no, no. No, no. It's it's pleasant, sort of mid twenties. But yeah, right. what were you what were you doing in Maine? I was being an artist in residence at <sighs> the School for Furniture Craftsmanship. Yeah, right. Who were very good, actually. They're very good. Yeah, what 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 did you do? Like, what was your little project? Huh, well, um, it was largely. Uh, well, it was, it, it, first of all, I wanted to do something different. Um, I didn't want to do another chair. No. Um, and I've had a a design in mind for a boat for a very very long time, and. Um, I made a model of it, yeah, right. which involved. I mean, the, it, it changed quite a lot from the thing, the scribbles I had when I went over there. But it's also it's Maine is a centre, sort of world centre mm. for um, wooden boat building. Yep. So I t- talked to loads of people about making boats and rigging them and stuff like that, and I made this model, which was a sixth scale of an eighteen foot boat, and. I brought it back, and I'm worried not for this lockdown that we're in. I would mm. be testing it right now, the model. Yeah, right. Uh, and I've cleared the space in my workshop, and I've decided it's going to be 16 foot and not 18 foot. 
because there's more chance of me getting it done that way. Because it actually fits in your workshop. It sits in the workshop, yes. Yeah, you'll be able to get it out the doors, yep. Otherwise, 18 foot, you won't get it out the doors. It'll be stuck there forever. Uh, no, it's, it's well, the width. <laughs> I've joking. got lots. Uh, I've got big doors. <laughs> that's, that's a bonus. No, it's um, what I've what I've got to is, um, is is making the platform to build it on, which is on casters, so I can yeah. move it out of the way. Are you even outside? Are you near a water source? Like, are you near the sea or a lake or no? No, but I'm being Britain, none of it's that far from the sea. No, I guess not. But the sea would be about uh, be a couple of hours away. Oh, really? That, yeah, it's still a bit of a hike, isn't it? No, it is. It is. But um, I, mean, I used to be closer. No, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's the way it is. So what's special about the boat? Like, have you got a design thing going on there that's going to be faster, or is it just for fun? Um, or? Well, it's a kind of a, it's a camping day boat. Mm. So there are several of them around... <clears throat> in Britain, and there's one there's, which is a British design, which is pretty worldwide, which is called a Drascom. If you, uh, I, I'm sure there are some of them in Australia. They're extraordinarily popular. Yeah. They're about 17 foot something or other. But what, and there's a number of others of them, and what they all are, they're all uh, based on traditional designs. And one of the things that, yeah, there's a number of things this incorporates. One is that it it it, that it, it has the rigging is not staged. Do, do you know about boats? No. Ah. Well, it could well be then that. Um, no, just 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 a, yeah, give it a go. Like uh, the well, rig- um, most boats have got a mast that has got that's got standing rigging on it, so it's got yep. shrouds and a forestay and a backstay, and the mast is basically held up by being by being held up by wires yep. which are attached to the boat. Yep. And that has several results. One is that there's very high tensile and therefore compressive loads on the hull. Yeah. Also that there's that the mast is stiff. What I'm proposing is something which is, isn't uh, incredibly unique by any means. It has been done but not in a boat as small as this, which is too... The mast is not stayed. It is supported where the sail begins, which is called the gooseneck, by a a, a sort of a a ring, basically. If you can imagine going across the section of the boat, Mm. so it goes down to the bottom of the... where the keel would be, and it comes up, and it joins the mast more or less where the sail starts. So in theory, you've got room to get underneath it yep. to get forward. Now, one of the things with an unstayed mast is that you can't have a foresail in the accepted sense. The thing with a your standard Bermudan rig, which, of course, is phenomenally successful. Mm. Uh, you know, it's interesting to see how conventionally rigged some of these America's Cup things are, which are doing fantastic speeds. The thing which hasn't changed a lot is the rigging. Yeah. So... There's an awful lot going for Bermudan rig. Yeah. And what it does do is it allows you to have a foresail. And the advantage of having two sails is that you have something called a slot effect. So you can you can use the fore, the front sail to modify the airflow past the mm. back sail. Yeah. What I'm doing is it's got two masts, which gives you this, this benefit. 
it can't have an ordinary force because if it's got a force it's then got a force stay that the so there's tension there, and you've yeah. got to compensate for that. I mean, the rest of the ringing. Yeah. The other, the benefit of of the thing not being stayed is that it will flex, so it will become more tolerant of gusts and things like this, and with lower loads on the hull and less wire and stuff hanging around the place. Which means you can have a lighter weight hull. It, it means that the hull can be a bit lighter, yes. Um, but it mainly means that the well, what it looks like almost is a pair of windsurfer sails. So they're fully yeah. backed, yeah. quite modern. Yeah. And they match very clearly. There's another benefit of the whole thing, which is that going downwind, you can put a sail out each side reliably. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that it has going is it's the rig is a tiny bit like a junk rig which is a very good rig for reefing. So this isn't for maximum speed. It is for, it can have quite a, quite a large sail area, but it not be, a, not be an inconvenience. The thing with, with junk, mm-hmm. there's quite a lot going for junk rigs, uh, not least the ability to depower them very easily. So what this boat will do is, it, it will be faster, it'll be faster than a Draskin. Um, quite a bit faster, and it'll sail better at the expense of a tiny bit of seaworthiness. So perfect for estuaries and things like that. Yeah. Or sailing around Sydney Harbour would be pretty good. You'll have to sail it here. <laughs> if you if you survive the um, journey, you can have <clears throat> heaps of fun on Sydney Harbour. It'd be beautiful. Well, I wouldn't even, wouldn't even attempt it. No. So anyway, that's something I've been doing. And one of the things with... Um, that's fascinating about boat design is the idea of, I mean, it's a, 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 a term in sailing and in other things, this situation comes where you have like a sweet spot. Yeah. And it particularly happens when you're sailing into the wind, where you're sailing, you're making 90 degree turns and you're stepping your way up it towards the direction of the wind. Mm. And it's called tacking, and you'll have seen this happening. Mm. And it's the most most demanding point of sale. And there's an expression amongst English gentlemen of a Victorian or a Edwardian thing that gentlemen don't sail to windward. But in practice, sailing to windward is where it's at, Mm. I think. And there's a point that you can get to, and it's about the boat's design, it's about your ability to sail it, which is just bang on, because the higher up into the wind you go, the slower you go until you stop. Mm. On the other hand, the lower, the further off the wind you go, the, the longer your passage. Mm. You know, if you can imagine that you're doing a sort of zigzag into the yeah. wind, if that angle gets to be, the less that angle is, then the further you've got to travel. Yeah. And the sweet spot is where you've got all that right, where you're not losing much speed, yeah. and you've got the shortest distance. <laughs> and that yeah. is the sweet spot. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this and go into it because, yes, it's what's interesting about sailing, but it's also where that interfaces really with my ideas on almost everything else, that the sweet spot is the spot to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When there's not... There's no more of anything than is necessary, yeah. but the balance is spot on, <laughs> and yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in the case of sailing, you know, sailing to windward, if you're doing it right, that's a bit, I, I mean, I don't sing, but, you know, having perfect pitch would 
be a similar sort of thing. <laughs> Singing in perfect um, harmony with your partner or something, yeah. Well, yes, mm. yeah. So, um, Do you know, also, you know, being... Hmm? Yeah, David, look, it, I, I, I get where you're coming from. There's after yep. your you've you've risen to the challenge. You've got an awesome set of tools. You've got a great set of skills, and you put them all to good use using all the practice you've had in the world. And it becomes timeless. Time disappears. You get into a, a flow sort of motion or something. And this is the sweet spot you're talking about. Yes, but it also applies to to design and looking at some of your questions that you wrote, that, which I've written little notes by, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not looking at. <laughs> Neither um, am I, because I can't no, see I think that, that with, with design, you, you, you do talk about, you know, that, uh, you know, the important things of design, and that it's, yeah. in order to have a sweet spot, you sort of need to have an end in view. Now, in the case of sailing, it's very simple. Uh, you know, the, the, the way to learn to sail is to race. I don't have a, a strong competitive spirit, but that's how I learned to sail was through racing mm. because it gives you a measure of how well you're doing, obviously, in a way yeah, that okay. uh, otherwise it also, because you can see people doing it who are doing it better than you and see how and why. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the, when it comes to designing things, there's an awful lot to be said. Or the starting point for me is to have some idea of the performance you're trying to meet Mm-hmm. So it could be, in the case of a chair, I mean, comfort would be, you know, almost you know, that that's the thing which really matters. And that involves understanding what posture is about. Mm-hmm. It involves, it, it then also, in the case of, you know, as soon as you start looking at, at, at that, and you're then looking at strength to weight ratios, mm-hmm. not in a very scientific way, but you know if it's going to be heavy or light. Mm. you know, just by the nature of the design. And as far as this is, stick with chairs for the moment, since that's what I've done most of. It's fairly obvious, really, that as far as a chair is concerned, that the load that it's supporting is a moving load. Mm. And what we know about moving loads is that they're much, much, much heavier than static loads. And that we also know that that structures which have a degree of flexibility in them are much better at supporting loads than structures which don't Mm, have a flexibility, particularly if you want them light as well. Mm. So you can see that, you can see where I'm coming from with this, that that the design and the appearance, it's like the appearance to me is is the result of, is a symptom of of you being fairly close to the sweet spot. And of course, the sweet spot's going to be different. And of course, for most people in designing things, the sweet spot is, does it sell? And does it increase my my market penetration, as it were? Mm. That has never interested me at all, which is why it is that it was a failure as a business. (laughs) Um, But um, it is also the reason why most things are, which are, you know, it seems to me that most things don't look very good when they don't look very good, which is most of the time, is that they're all pursuing the same market they'll, and that they're, that they're, by and large, there'll be a little bit of innovation, but not a lot. You know, take, for instance, you know, car design. Yeah. That 
it's actually gone downhill, it seems to me, in a big way. Really? Um, it, it, what, aesthetically I, speaking? Aesthetically speaking. Because it's not actually trying to answer anything very interesting. Mm. You know, it's, it's all... It's sort of... If we talk... cow cuckoo land about it all. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of marketing be, involved. I happen to know, because I've worked in the automotive industry, that... At least 20 years ago when I did, the stylists had the biggest say. But I think a car is such a complicated object. There are so many things, so many little systems and networks going on in that object. Mm-hmm. A car today is a better design than it would have been 20 years ago. I don't think there'd be any question, like as a whole design, you may not like the aesthetics, but as in terms of safety, performance, Fuel economy. This may, uh, this may very well be true, but I think 60% of cars sold in Britain are SUVs. In <laughs> Same here. <laughs> now, the biggest selling car is a Hilux. Sorry? The biggest selling vehicle in Australia is a Hilux. Has been for yes. years. Yeah. Yes. But, I mean, it's a slightly different matter in Australia as with America, because, you know, you're living in this sort of funny desert place, mm. which is miles from anywhere. Well, a lot most... of the roads aren't made up. But bloody Britain, you know, the whole place is covered in tarmac. And, um, you know, you, can't, you can get anywhere on tarmac. <laughs> and, but so it's, to some extent, it's the question that's being asked. Yeah. And, it's, and visually, it seems to me that, um, you know, this has had a, well, in, and again, this is just the European market, it probably goes elsewhere, that actually the weight of cars has gone up. I'm not talking electric ones. No, I think you... ordinary cars. The weight has gone up. I have been very surprised about that too. Mm, yeah. And that has to be madness. You know. Well, the other thing he says, of course, is that you know, people designing motor cars are not remotely concerned about fuel consumption. Not really, really. That's down the list. If they were consult, concerned about it, they would have more respect for aerodynamics and much more respect for weight, mm. which they don't. You know, that, that bit of it, seems, it gets worse. They get slightly bigger. They've got more gadgets on them for certain. Um, <laughs> and they are becoming, I would say, with the last batch of them, Less aerodynamic. You know, to look at a, yeah. um, a, a, a the latest Ford Focus type, or any of the Fords actually, yeah. the model before them and the model before that of a Ford Focus, which is probably the best design of that Ford produced, almost certainly the most effective. I would say that, that the aerodynamics had got worse, and the styling generally has become more gimmicky. Mm. And that the new one looks like something out of a superhero's comic, <laughs> as do most of them. <laughs> but that's, that's by the by, really. Yeah. I was going to ask you, David, how's your Ford Mustang going? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, quite. quite. What car do you drive? I drive an old-ish, 13-year-old Volvo estate car. Uh-huh. And it's the... It's the third one I've had, but but I buy I buy secondhand. I bought it off. Uh, I, I, I don't see the, I don't see the point of buying new cars. Uh, but I do most of my travelling around the place on a push bike. 
Do you? Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's good. I mean, I don't go very far on it. I do the shopping. I do mm. you know, I go and visit people. I do whatever. But that's how I get around most of the time, and particularly now, of course. And, and I have two push bikes that I'm very, very fond of. Yeah. I don't suppose you made one of those yourself, did you? I did not. I did not. No. Maybe you should. Tempting as it might be. Yeah, I know. So what are you going to make this boat out of? Are you going to make it out of wood or are you going to make it out of... It's going to be ply. Yep. Ply. It's a system that I first came across. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, quite obvious if it was going to get to be produced in any quantity, I have no doubt it would end up being made out of uh, out of fiberglass. Mm. Um, there's a way of doing things, which is like a clinker-built way of doing things, mm. that... There's a boat that, that, that when I used to race dinghies, which I did oh, years and years and years and years ago, uh, the dinghies I raced was something called a Merlin Rocket, which was a 14-foot boat that originally was planked, so it was it was a, what's called a clinker build. Do you know what that is? Yeah, so I do. Planks over yeah. lap. You got mm. the bridge. Right. The way these Merlin Rockets were built, and also, in fact, the, uh, the Drascoms that I was talking about, the original wooden ones of them, were built the same way, and I've no doubt quite a number of other things, where they're planked, but the planks are ply. And so, and you, what you make is a shell. Traditionally, what you did was to have ribs and you then mm. nail the planks to the ribs, yep. and there'd be no glue involved. Yep. Even before epoxy became so widely available, they started making them out of ply, cutting it into planks, and uh, so the plank could be wider, the joints could be fewer, and it's all glued, and it ends up being a shell yep. construction rather than a ribbed construction. So there's no structure within it. Or if there is, you put it in afterwards. You'd have to build it around a form, wouldn't you? You do indeed build it around a form. Mm. That's exactly what uh, what I came back from America with with this model and all the templates for the for the for the formers. Yeah, right. So I worked out the um, hull shape there in foam. Actually, the only change I'm making is that it's. I, I was going to do it one to six, and I'm now going to do it one to five. Just to because I think there's more chance of me finishing it. <laughs> really. It's such a big job. Well, it, it, is. Yeah. it is. It is. But I've, what I've figured is if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. No. Probably get in there. And I'm assuming yeah. you can sleep in it. Um, it's a camping boat. So, yes, you could. And you can beach it as well. Uh-huh. I mean, I've actually just sold my half share of a 35-foot um, ocean-going boat. Uh, that was a, originally used for racing. Yeah. So I've done a lot of sailing, and, the, and that, of course, that, 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 had, that was five berths. Originally, it was seven berths. So I know all about that world. Mm. Uh, it isn't that. It is something which is trailable. It's a something mm. that you can go out for a short time in. It's altogether, it's, it's a much more, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a completely different kettle of fish, really. Yeah. I, I get confused with feet, I have to say. I'm so used to metres, and I'm just... Uh, no, it's five metres. Yeah. 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 This other boat I've got is... So it's just a boat seemed to be seemed to be imperial, mostly. Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah, just for, It's hard um, for me to visualise. It, it, yeah. it's, it's actually, it's, it's slightly under five metres, very slightly. Mm. And the boat, the, the other boat I've just... Uh, sold my share of for not very much. I had it for a very long time. This boat, 
and that was 10 metres, 10 metres, but, oh, you know, 15, 20 times heavier, <laughs> more than that. You know, it's five and a half tonnes, whereas this will be very light. Yeah, well, if you could put on a trailer, you have to get a big trailer for your bike. Yeah, indeed, exactly. You've got it. You've got yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. You'll have to buy an SUV too. Your Volvo won't do it. You won't, you'll have to buy a Range Rover. No, no. It's actually it's quite interesting what you can tow with an ordinary car. <laughs> yeah, but it won't look the same, David. You'll have to get the Range Rover. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, you can't move from the run this far. No, I can't really. Oh, goodness. How, yeah, how did you get started as a designer and maker of things? Um, well, I really knew what I wanted to do even before I'd ever heard of designers. Mm. It was what I did as a kid. Yeah. And it, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of obvious, really, that you know, and then I found out that there was a job which was like this, which was designing things, and and I couldn't do anything else. That was part yeah. of it. Why is that? Well, um, I was profoundly dyslexic before anybody knew anything about dyslexia. Yeah, God. That naturally predisposes you to, you know, to the visual language, really. Yeah. And I was always... It, it wasn't totally, totally, totally foreign because my parents were, were both painters and they met at art school. Mm. And although I've never really been, I mean, I draw like one does, but I've never uh, been attracted to the fine arts as something to do for myself. So, but nevertheless, it was, it, their world was a bit out of the average groove, particularly in sort of suburban South London, which is where I was brought up. And my household was definitely rather different from most others. You know, it was a sub suburban thing and you know, most of the parents around were the same kind of age as my parents and most of them have got children the same age as us. So we it was a it was definitely a neighbourhood and one knew almost everybody there because they all got kids and they're all much the same age. And my parents they sort of stood out really as being you know, with the different most of the most of the fathers, you'd see them at the bus stop in the morning, and they'd all be in bowler hats and umbrellas mm. and stuff. And my dad was in suede shoes, God forbid, because the only people who wore suede shoes were kind of pimps and um, gangsters. <laughs> was and, he a gangster? But, uh, <laughs> no, um, but no, that, that, that was my that was a, a, a fairly influential part of my background. But so, yeah. but they weren't what. What uh, interested me always, and I notice, I know now from, you know, having spoken about this sort of sweet spot, mm. um, that that's always what interested me. I don't remember, you know, before I knew anything. I knew that, and I knew it mainly through making model airplanes, mm. which is what, one of the things I did. I made Meccano, I made model airplanes, yeah. and I fixed push bikes yeah. and rode them. Yeah. And then I started fiddling around with boats, model boats first of all, and then I made a canoe and then I started sailing things and anyway, but the but the whole thing of the the relationship and I didn't I mean to start off with this was this was completely intuitive and I hadn't reasoned anything out. But the 
where you have a performance, a, a, a flying model, also with flying model. Now, I made them first. I made them. I made loads and loads and loads and loads of them. I was. I'd always got one on the go, and they started off being stuff that you got from a kit. And one of the lessons from that was, which is, may or may not be relevant, was that the scale models never flew as well as the ones which weren't scale models. So the scale model of the Spitfire, and I've made a couple of them, and they were crap at flying. Mm. The ones that flew well were the ones which were simpler. Mm. And having realized that, I then started making my, to my own design, which it turns out isn't terribly difficult. And that, by and large, I noticed it from the Observer's Book of Aircraft, which you probably did. You must have had those there, mustn't you? I Do you have those? don't ever remember that. But okay. Yeah, there probably was. Yeah. Anyway, what was, what was obvious, really, was the things which looked best worked best, uh-huh. to my mind. And so... Just, just hold that thought, real... David. Hold that thought. This is this goes back to a, the sense of aesthetic that you were talking about before, isn't it? Like oh, this, yes. This is going to be a common theme, I think. Yeah, it is. Utterly. Mm. Utterly. Yeah. So uh, when I started off on the sort of design, bit, uh, I, I already knew. I knew from that. The other thing I knew from what, what I was interested in, which sort of um, rather slots things into the right, yeah, yeah, it, it, it stacks up the you know the ideas and a lot of the questions you've asked. Mm. When I was a kid, my parents—I had a sister, so the, uh, we were in the back of the car laterally or dragged off one way or another. We didn't have a car for quite a long time actually. When I was yeah. A kid. yeah, but we'd go by bus, and what we'd do is we'd go. My parents were really big on going to national trust properties, mm-hmm. and of course around London, there's loads of them, and they would be fascinated by the interiors of these places and all the rest of that. From the very, very, very early age, I, I, one thing I should explain actually possibly is that the, that the, although my parents had this, you know, they, they were both very talented and my dad particularly was very successful in the, was given the, his starting point, which was, from a very, very, very low level, both my parents came from uh, single-parent families, mm. which was often the case, actually, after the f- uh, First World War. Mm. Um, and they were both pretty impoverished, both from bits of a bit further into London, but not into the fashionable bits of London. But South London is not the place you want to be brought up, really. Have you, have you been to London? I have. Yeah. Very briefly. Yeah, well, you wouldn't have gone mm. to South London. No. South London is definitely a step down from um, from North London and all of that, the Hampsteads and places. So where, I, where my parents both came from was sort of Tooting and Mitcham, which is just at, at the end of the underground line. It's sort of just about served by public transport. And it is grubbier and poorer. Um, and that's where I spring from. Yeah. And then moving out into this housing estate when I was seven, up until then we lived with my grandmother. Anyway, so I'm getting into all this because yeah. the background I come from is actually quite a poor one. Yeah. And my aunts and uncles, such as they were, were 
working in factories or they were doing whatever. One was a bus driver, and so it was a it was a working class background. And I I never I've never really forgotten that because my sympathies yeah. were always with them. And I grew up, of course, you know, um, I was born in 1944, so I remember ration books very well. Yeah. Um, I remember the poverty and the dreariness of British life up until the very late 1950s. Yeah. You know, by which time I was in my early teens. So when we went down to these stately homes and my parents were going on about, I mean, they were going on about how, how beautiful all this stuff was, you know, the, the clothes and the paintings and the furniture and the houses. And I just thought it was vulgar. And I not only thought it was vulgar, I thought that the social situation that gave rise to it yeah. was completely unacceptable. Yeah. And I still feel that. Yeah, yeah. But what was interesting about them, almost all of them had a bit which was the stables or there was the blacksmiths or there was mm. particularly the further you get out of London, so the more rural they are, there's a farm and there's a whole thing. And those, of course, were state-of-the-art at the time, you know, that they'd have a forge and all those things. And that was the bit which interested me. Yeah, the working part. Was that mm. it's, it's preserving how the servant class worked and mm. were. Mm. And that the aesthetic of that was overwhelmingly more interesting mm. than the mannered thing of, of the stately home, 18th century visual values, which, of course, are pretty much the ones which have dominated the well, most cities in the world, wherever, almost, mm -hmm. particularly if, if the country's been colonial. There's this whole style of building, style of furniture, style of everything, diet, you know, <laughs> and, and, a, and a lack of concern for the practicality of it. Yeah. So you have a, something which is desirable because it's involved a huge amount of work. Yeah. By somebody very skilled, yes, that's jolly good. But it was always, as it were, in furniture terms, the Windsor chair tradition is interesting. Yeah. The Chippendales and the Heppelwhites and all that lot, I couldn't give, I mean, they're crap. <laughs> you know, they're not comfortable, they're not very makeable. Yeah. Yeah. They've got nothing going for them at all. They're highly ornamented. Highly ornamented, but you know, <laughs> but in terms of their, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't do it for me. No, no, you're much yeah. more interested in the vernacular, and I'm much more interested in the vernacular. Yes, yeah. and it seems to me that the vernacular is also, of course, the the core of of, of the modern movement. Do you really you think know, so? Through, oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm not talking about postmodernism. I'm not talking no. about what's been happening no, no, for the no, past you're 40 about the years. But, mm. I'm talking about, yeah, just, you know, what we think of as modernism you know, from, from William Morris onwards, really. And we're not talking about the style of modernism. We're talking about modernism as an ideal, as a, yes. an ethos. Yes. Or, yes. Yeah, yes. Philosophy. And the great thing, what I do remember, of course, was, you know, the, 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 when I was growing up, that was the thing which 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 made it all uh, bearable, really, because it was incredibly dull times. I'm saying that you know the, the, the mm. 1950s in Britain. 
the fact that underneath it all was the idea that it was going to be different. It wasn't going to be like it was before the Second World War. Mm. It was going to be different. And, you know, it had a socialist government, being, you know, the national health, all these other things were were happening, and that everyone thought that, you know, that there was a new world order appearing. Yeah. And that sort of went on, really, up, right up through the 60s. And it seemed to me that it faded out in the early 1970s that that was no longer the, the mm. you know, it's all become sort of you know, deeply degraded by then. And also, of course, modernism lost its 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 appeal to the general public because of things like blocks of flats falling down and, oh, you know, all, all those things. The thing, one of the things with modernism is, is it did allow things to get to be very cheap and, you know, with the obvious, obvious problems. Yeah. And I thought at the time, God, this is going to be really bad if we start reverting back to this other style of stuff, which is, you know, essentially sort of... You know, for want of a better word, sort of, you know, bourgeois values, which, of course, is exactly what happened. I was going to point that out to you, David. I'm sorry to say. It's very clear that that's exactly what did happen. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't played that part in your life. No, I haven't. No. No, I haven't. I've... What I... Oh, it's funny, really, isn't it? To my mind, I suppose, you know, that by... The early 1970s, by which time I'd been through the Royal College and uh, my work, my whole world had been uh, dominated by different materials and different sets of values and so forth. Mm. And it was the tag end of, you know, the mid-century modern. And I already saw the disadvantages of that. I already saw that it was it had become a styling job. And yeah. also that the world was changing our understanding of the world was changing very, very fast. There was a whole load of things which, to me, were very influential around the point that I left the RCA and in the early part of the, uh, of the 1970s. So I left the RCA in 1968 mm. at the point that the world I lived in was absolutely swinging. And yeah. you couldn't go wrong. No. I lived in the most active part of the most active city in the world probably mm. I lived in South Kensington which was yeah. it was you know it, it was road down the road to do my shopping it was, I was in Chelsea I was in the King's Road and that was where I spent the 70s pretty much but what what had become extremely obvious to me even before then, and it follows on from this thing I was talking about with my parents and the National Trust properties and stately homes and stuff. There had been prompt, prompts before, one of, you know, one of whom, who was available to the likes of us, was Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. And Fuller recognized that you couldn't have infinite growth. And Fuller came up with a wonderful expression to my mind which is to do the mostest with the leastest Mm. and he was talking about this in the 1960s I heard him I didn't take it on board totally but I well I sort of did I sort of did but yeah by the early 1970s or coming to the mid the early 1970s there was a load of stuff coming out mostly in books which clarified the situation for me very clearly and 
one of which was uh, Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. Have you read that? No, I haven't even heard oh. of that one. Haven't you? No. Oh, now here we are, E.F. Schumacher, uh-huh. published in something like 1972, probably. And he was actually the scientific advisor, 1973, first published. Um, he was um, a, a person who was actually the, the financial director of the National Coal Board. It was nationalized in those days. Mm. And, but he came up with this thing, which was, it, it had an awful lot in common with Eastern thought. And there's a lot of stuff that has a lot of stuff in common with Eastern thought at the mm-hmm. time. And what it was saying, sort of, was that what we do has consequences. And those consequences get paid for, one way or another. So that, for instance, you know, sacking a load of miners makes a great deal of sense if your only concern is doesn't consider the future for the miners or the cost of maintaining them in a state yeah. of disillusionment, mm. which turns out to be very high. Do you mm. see what I mean? That it's, I do. So mm. What all of these things are, uh, that, that, that they are relativistic. You can do this, but mm. there's a downside. Somebody's going to pay somewhere. Someone's got to pay somewhere. Yeah, mm. exactly. So there's a sort of subtitle, which is like as a Buddhist approach to economics, is the sort of thing. Very, 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 very well worth reading. Obviously a bit out of date. And then there's a load of other stuff as well coming out at the same time. One, The other one, which was, for me, very influential, was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Isn't that a great book? You read that? Yeah, I have. Mm? It's an awesome book. Yes. And what that's sort of talking about, it seems to me, is the the limits of reason, as it were, that the sideways look. Mm. So that was very influential. At the same time as all this was going, I realized that it had never occurred to me, you know, if you go and, even then, if you went and stood on a bridge over a motorway, you looked at all this traffic, even then, and you thought, how can this conceivably not be having a detrimental effect? How can you possibly be burning all this stuff without it having an environmental impact? Mm. By the 70s, the early 70s, people have been, this is beginning to be quantified. And it was completely obvious to, to me, not to most people, it turns out. But, uh, and this is something to do, actually, this comes back to the dyslexia thing again, actually, that you're picking up different signals. Mm. And, you know, that, that, that your approach to language and being understood has to be modified for the fact, by the fact that you don't read. Yeah. And, and particularly then, because, you know, it, it was actually, uh, it, it was a very demoralizing experience. It was, a, it, you know, those, it, it being dyslexic at the time, yeah. particularly not in a progressive school, yeah. it, was, it, it was deeply humiliating. And you don't get over it. So that is a background to an awful lot of my world. Because by the time you're 15 or something, or certainly, you know, you're 14 and you're still struggling to read and spell, mm. write. Mm. You're, a huge part of you is formed by them. And my education started when I went to art school, without any question. Yeah. All the rest of it was a complete waste of time. It, it, no, it wasn't. It was worse than that. It was humiliating. <laughs> you know, it was... It was um, yeah. and, and 
I'm sure if you talk to other dyslexics, you'll find much the same thing, particularly at my mm. age, before it got... I mean, my daughter, one of my daughters is also dyslexic. She had a fantastic time. She had a really good teacher. She is not remotely <laughs> damaged by it. No, but she probably knew that she had it and could, could be communicated and... Yes, but also I suppose that, you know, I had a sympathy and Jackie had a sympathy because yeah. Jackie lived with me and uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> she, she could yeah. see, the, see what was going on. So, yeah. anyway, coming back to this, this influences, the other big influence was, have you come across a book called Architecture Without Architects by Bernard Rudofsky? No, I have not. Ah. Well, that again was... It, the one, the copy I've got of it, it's actually it's quite a rare thing to have nowadays. It was actually originally published as a catalogue to a photographic exhibition mm. of buildings which across the world and across the uh, ages and, and, and cultures which weren't designed by architects. The vernacular buildings mm. with a purpose, be it grain stores or be it house, desert mm. housing with roofs that ventilate them effectively or all manner of things, you know, places it's a, you know, for troglodytic tribes and fabulous books, photographs. Yeah. And again, that, again, it was the purpose that came first and it was the yeah. expediency. So it's expediency, I think, is really, really, really interesting. There's something else and that is there's trial and error always with yes. those sorts of buildings you, you build it yes. falls down oh, i built a yes. built my castle fell into the swamp built yes. another one that fell into the swamp and like the vernacular is all about having a go it fails have another go and it keeps getting refined and refined and refined and refined until it is the essence yes exactly and what i think i've been trying to do is as it were to to sort of try and compost those ideas if you know what i mean so mm. to try and do things in such a way that uh, you know the one speeding that process up, or even bringing some of those processes into the modern world in which we live, because uh, oh, just because they're vernacular doesn't mean they're not still valid, and you can or that they're old. Yeah, you know that you think of the vernacular as being old, but it ain't. You know, there's some, um, oh, which is one of the appeals of sailing boats. In a way, and bicycles come to that. But um, you know, you can look at a a sailing boat, and you can think, well, I mean, that's going to sail like a pig. Yeah, right. And it'll be because it's ugly or it's whatever. And you can look at another boat or push bike or those things actually, and think, gosh, I I imagine that would go really, really well. Yeah, they're not separate. It seems to me, it's you know, and within nature, they're not separate. I suppose part of what I believe is that everything speaks. And this was a little bit like the conversation we had previously, that that there's, to, for me, there's a problem, or well, from the way I work at least, I'm not saying this is universally the case, it isn't universally the case, I'm sure, but that that you you can rely on the fact that if it, does work if it's got a chance of working. If it, you know, if it's going to be, it's going to find the sweet spot. It's going to look good. Mm. There's hardly any exceptions to that, or at least look interesting. You know that the that they're not separate for me. Mm. That the that the, the, the you've got this bundle that's that's responding to the questions you're asking of it, and that 
there's a whole range of things which you want it to do. I mean, you've it's obviously it's got to be within your capacity. Either you've got the time or you've got the money for it, or you know it's, it's fulfilling mm. climatic expectation, or it's fulfilling a you know a, a comfort in the case of chairs, which is the thing I've done most of. It's fulfilling what you want by way of you know it's, it's a tool that your body can use to to be comfortable with, to exercise yourself well, to, you know. And there is no divide. You know, how is it made? What does it do? So that, for instance, as far as chairs are concerned, that if they're, if they're for individual use as opposed to being public seating, they need to move. They need to just very, very slightly need to move. Mm-hmm. And that an example that I've often given is that, you know, do you, do you dance? No, <laughs> no, I, I do, but you do. I, well, right. I, I do. I, I, I quite like dancing, but Lorraine says that I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, and are you aware of the? Have you danced on a proper a, dance floor? Yeah, look, yeah, I have. And isn't it so much more comfortable than <laughs> dancing on a concrete floor? The sprung floors are amazing. Yeah. Yes. Now, what's interesting to me is, I've never done it, but it'd be really interesting to measure the movement of that sprung floor. Mm. And I bet it's about a millimetre at the most. I don't think it'd be very much. And and what's really interesting about flexibility is a very little of it goes a very long way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that if you... uh, you Just take a chair, let's say, and you design it in the usual fashion you know leg at each corner and a back legs making the back of it and yeah. the rest of it is it's essentially it's a post post and rail post construction and rail. Yeah. isn't it yeah. and the thing with them is very good for architecture because architecture you, you can't afford for there to be much flexibility unless of course it's you know a, a skyscraper but in a chair it's absolutely vital so everything to do with the leg at each corner and the, you know, your average, your, your design of a chair is an appalling structure <laughs> to support a moving load, which is why they break. Yeah. And so, do you know what I mean? That it's, yeah. that it's, that as soon as you've got something like that, you've got a huge part of the interest of, of the object is, is, is already there. Do you know what I mean? It's got nothing to do, it's got a bit to do with how you styled it, but it's the fundamental thinking about it, which matters. How does it work as a structure? How does it work as, you know, as a piece of, the appropriateness of the structure and the material is where it starts for me. Does this provide the sort of result, like, you know, it's a bit like if you're going to build a ballroom, having a floor which is good to dance on is a really, really, really good start. And so it goes, you know, there's other things which, and the other things which um, happen, you know, as soon as you, when you then get into public seating, which is another thing which interests me very, very much indeed. What you then want is something which encourages conviviality. And that sitting on a bench in line, as in 99.9% of public seating, you're sitting... Uh, you're juxtaposed with your neighbour in a way that you would never ever conceive of doing under any other circumstance. Mm. Because you're neither engaged with them 
the way, you know, if you and I were sitting here talking now, we would be possibly around a table, but our chairs would be would be canted round towards each other. Yeah, they would. So we'd be sort of facing each other-ish. Mm-hmm. Although we might have well, a table between You know what, David? We are, we are actually looking at each other via the microphone, in my case, and the phone in your case. <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, so that, that, you know, conviviality is something other else that one can give as a designer of things. I've done a bit of public speaking. I've always enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, um, ditto. And what I've wanted to do with all of it, and by and large this has worked, is arrange things so that people either have the option of engaging with somebody by the fact that it is easy for them to turn a bit towards each other or you already arrange it like that, or that you shunt, that you can shunt round easily slightly the other way so you don't have anything to do with that person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You get but the privacy. thing with the, the inline mm-hmm. bench, as in all this other seating, is it doesn't give you either. It doesn't give you privacy and it doesn't give you mm. conviviality either. Mm. It doesn't aid it. And this, to my mind, is actually, you know, it's, it's, the way that, it's the way that human beings work and the way that they are, which is interesting. Mm. And how can you draw that out? So, um, I, haven't, I haven't done a mega, mega, mega amount of it, but when I have done it, I found it absolutely fascinating to find out yeah. about the circumstances around this meeting. So I'm a lot of, quite a lot of the stuff yeah. I've done in art galleries, for instance, a seating. That has actually usually been when I've been commissioned by the museum, not by the architect. The architect usually doesn't want any of that sort of stuff because it probably interrupts the, you know, their own language, which by and large isn't very interested in human comfort. I think architects, well, look, architects, they have a lot of things going on all at once. There's a lot of balls in the air. I think it's, you know, for a designer of furniture or even the boat, it is a fairly finite kind of space. It's it's got finite criteria. And uh, I think a building is, especially a large building, they're difficult. A large and complicated, complex team that are building it. Oh, absolutely, I, I, and it doesn't mean that you you oughtn't try. Mm. I am appalled, appalled at the mediocrity in architecture. Not being an architect, an architect is more than welcome to ring me up and tell me otherwise. Very happy to have that conversation. Um, but it does seem to me that there are holes in lots of buildings that I know that are new. Really, really appallingly bad holes, shameful holes. Right. And what is the what is the? Do the holes have something in common? Lack or of reason for them. Lack of attention to detail. Right. A bench next to a cupboard, so you can't open the cupboard. Oh. Things of that yeah, that's not sort useful, of. Is it? No, it's absolutely useless. Things of that right. nature. Right. Just the way things are built, like. Um, faux concrete on MDF I mean don't just don't do it do concrete for sure do MDF but don't do faux concrete on MDF just please don't no quite anyway quite yeah well that yes that's for uh, told you before what I'm now doing is designing buildings yeah let's get into Which, that um, <laughs> how are you going about that it's a it's a hard job well how I got into it was 
again, it's so obvious, really, that, uh, you know, actually, a huge part of it is the fact that pretty much worldwide, although there are some architects who've done some, you know, pretty extraordinary things, some of them have been good. What has been neglected hugely, it seems to me, is domestic architecture. Mm. And the other thing that, uh, that that happens, if you look at, I have a, an intellectual and a practical interest in this whole sustainability thing. I can hardly remember where it wasn't a concern of mine. Mm. You know, even before it got to be patently obvious, which is, as I say, was in the 1970s, when it was perfectly clear everything that has happened, both in the financial world and climatically, was predicted then accurately, you know, by the likes of Schumacher and, and a load of other people. And yet it has had no impact whatever on the design of domestic architecture in Britain. Mm. It's had quite a lot of influence, some influence, uh, in Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Germany, Holland, which of course are far more intelligent than us. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the concern for for the sort of civic culture is is much more profound than the British one. But so I've had in mind the idea of of doing sort of these passive solar buildings for a long time. I mm. actually built an ex, a, 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 a conservatory on the last house we had, which was uh, which was a school, mm. great granite mm. school building, Victorian monster, <laughs> and I built. It was a primary school. It wasn't nice and cold. Schools, cold in winter. Incredibly cold in winter. And I built Dark. Uh, this uh, conservatory on it, not south-facing, south-east-facing. Yeah. And the difference it made was absolutely stunning yeah, to the right. temperature of the building. Because uh-huh. the, temp- the building had so much thermal mass. So, I, And I sort of got interested in this and our other examples. There's another thing which, has, which happened around here and actually nearer to where we used to live, which was called the Centre for Alternative Technology. And that was started in the mid-1970s. And they were concerned about the the performance of buildings, insulation and trump walls and, mm. you know, how much heat you could get from the sun and how else you'd, you'd go about, you know, heating it and making it not like uh, your average British home, which is a very, very, very inefficient and very unimaginative and something I think something like a third of our carbon footprint is just heating our homes yeah. and that assumes that you're driving to work and you're doing all the other things that people do and you know flying places for holidays and, um, <laughs> We're not so doing it's, that a, now, it's a very it's anyway. a very 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 large amount of, 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 of energy is put into that and it's completely unnecessary I was aware of this and I had the opportunity to buy this bit of land that I bought and we bought the three of us bought this patch of land which is uh, we bought it off the Welsh Assembly Government and it was zoned for industrial use Mm. and we got planning permission for it for live work accommodation that's pretty interesting and the ratio was 70% work 30% live which is a that can be fudged a bit. Yeah. And the three of us bought this land and turned it into five building plots. Four of them are now built. One of them 
uh, for various reasons, should have been built and hasn't been, and we've actually bought it, and we're going to, just as you know, the rest of us have bought it, and we're going to yeah. have it and rent it to young people, which will be a, a similar design to the ones we've got. Anyway, this this was a, 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 I then started, this was got eight, eight years ago, I suppose, when this, when we actually bought this bit of land. It took a long, long, long time getting planning permission. It took a long time fiddling around, it took a long time designing them and getting them built. And, but they work. I have virtually no heating bill at all. The problem with my house, if it has a problem, is being too hot, <laughs> which is very, very, very easily solved. It totally is. Put the air conditioner on. <laughs> Open the windows. I'm joking. Re- reduce the amount of... I mean, yeah. In fact, they're, they're not that bad. It isn't. But anyway... I got into this other thing because then what happened, and of course, I, whilst this was going on, uh, the first thing we did was build a workshop, yeah. which was the prototype for the building form. Yeah. And the, then we used that, that workshop to build a two-story building behind, which is a, a flat on the top floor, an apartment on the top floor, and a studio uh, and guest accommodation on the ground floor. And then I did the one next door to me, which is very similar but bigger, and for a young couple who happens to be a builder yeah, uh, who built my thing. And he and I have been sort of fiddling with this since then. So I turned him on to the eco thing. He's now started a company doing eco builds, yeah. and I've attracted work designing buildings. And it coincided with a point at which... I, I didn't have any employees, uh, mainly because they left. But also, that was actually the other thing which I found that I, well, what I'd realised about being a furniture maker, uh, particularly of batch produced things, is that really your job is a, is, is a salesman. Yeah, that's that's the key thing. It's all marketing, and selling, yeah. hmm? or marketing. The sales and marketing yes. is the yeah. yes. Mm. That's that is the only skill you need. The rest of it is you can subcontract it. Yeah. Well, you can, you can subcontract it, mm. or it doesn't matter if the design isn't very good. All that really matters is it, it is, is it sells, and that it's tweaking the you know that it's. That it's uh, uh, look, the there, there is a level of integrity that it would be nice to keep, and in which case. A high level integrity would it would encourage also a high level of design and a, a good level of making. Of, of course, yeah, of course, of course. But it isn't. The, but the business stands or falls on whether somebody's out there flogging it properly. And I just got sick of flogging furniture. Yeah. So right now, I mean, I still have the workshop. I'm not quite sure. This has all happened in the last sort of six months, really. Yeah. Up until then, I'd been making furniture and selling it and employing a, a person or two. And so it all happened a bit by accident. And then I, you know, mm. I, I have to decide what to do with the current designs. Uh, I have to decide what to do with the workshop. And I would love to set up something with some other people where the stuff was being made. And, but I just mm. don't want to be a furniture salesman anymore. I, I'm crap at it. 
I don't want to manage it, and I don't want to. You know, I'm very happy to give it give it a workshop. I'm happy to do a whole bunch of stuff. Mm. Anyway, but that I've got time to think about that. And now, of course, with this, with you know, what's going on, um, I would you know not flog any furniture anyway. But fortunately, I've got two buildings on the go, three actually. So that's how I got into it, and I didn't really think very much about what it looked like. But it turns out that it looks sufficiently good that other people want something like it. So that's good. And this goes to your whole philosophy, doesn't it? You're, you're yes, not starting from an aesthetic perspective, point of view. You're starting from a functional point of view and how it performs. And yes. I, th- I suspect your attention to detail with the aesthetics is fairly well formed and in tune and I'm sure they're beautiful. Is there a way that people can see them online? Is there is there a website or photos? Well, no, there is, <laughs> the website is being done. I've got mm-hmm. photographs taken of it. I'll, I'll send you a couple, actually. Yeah, no, do. I'd love to well, have a look. But it, uh, the website is being redone, and it's and it, not by me. I'm not very web savvy or no. that kind of savvy, really. But uh, I've, the photographs have been taken, and the, you know, I'm very well aware I need to be doing something about it. And I'm not being pushed. I am having to do the pushing. And yeah. it isn't a good time to be pushing people <laughs> because... Yeah, it's actually. Have you found? I mean, presumably you're locked, locked in, are you, or not? Uh, I'm personally not. It's a little bit. So you just walk walk around like you always did. (laughs) Well, no, not quite. Uh, Australia's in a little bit of a different situation. Uh, Australia generally is. South Australia is definitely, which is where I'm living. We've, yeah. we've got very little or no community transmission. It's all come from overseas, uh, easily traceable for the most part. And there's only, I think there's 400 people infected and that's been stagnant pretty much. There's been no new infections here in South Australia for a little while. Oh, lucky are you. Yeah, so... Lucky are you. No, I mean, here it's, it's turned everyone's lives completely upside mm, down. Mm. I did visit somebody yesterday, a friend of mine, and we sat in their garden, and then we went for a walk, and we were two metres apart from each other, and we both had tea, bacterial hand things. Yeah. We both washed our hands frequently, yeah. particularly if we were both going to touch the same cake or do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, just, it, it, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And that, no, it's, 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 you know, you go shopping as little as possible. Mm. Um there's only two people allowed in a shop at a time. There's somebody standing outside it, mm-hmm. and you, all of it you do with great trepidation. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So that's why it's quite difficult to get anybody to do anything. One of the things that has been really quite interesting is how without that ex... I, I, I've got neighbors. We do talk sort of over the fence, but there's no... You couldn't. I couldn't go to somebody with a drawing and say, hey, what do you think about that? Or a bit of something, and they, we both touched the same piece of paper. Mm. You would not do that. Yeah. You wouldn't be close enough to somebody to show somebody something on a bit of A4 paper and say, what do you think, and actually point to bits or scribble on it. You wouldn't do that. No. And it's it's it's... it's it's quite. It does two things. One, of course, is it stops you having those 
intimate conversations about a point of detail. But it, and it's curiously um, difficult to explain, really. But it's, it, it, the fact that you're in this sort of state of isolation, mm. I find it quite stultifying. Yeah. And I'm in a much, much, much better position from most because I've got a workshop, I've got a studio, yeah. I've got a garden. There are people here who haven't got a workshop, haven't got a job. Mm. And they've got two kids in a blooming flat. Yeah. And they're, you know, my world is blessed. But, they, but what some other people are going through is absolutely awful, really dreadful. We're not allowed to go. I mean, I do go out because I live in the country. Yeah. And in theory, I shouldn't leave the building. Or certainly shouldn't leave the garden. Anyway, there yeah, you know, look at that's it, our problem. It's, it's pretty weird. And... That is the uh, recommendation here too, and that's the reason we don't have such uh, a big transmission because for the most part people have been staying home here and going out very infrequently and washing their hands. And oh, being... you're doing all that? Then? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Oh, well, okay. In which case, you know something about it. <laughs> yeah, we do. Look, everyone in Australia is, although we don't have the huge uh, number of people sick, Relatively speaking, we don't. It's, uh, it's still a big impost on our lives. Okay. Mm. No, I, I, from what you were saying, I thought you got away. No, I, 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 knew, <laughs> I knew I was giving you the wrong impression. Uh, for me personally, there's not a heap different. I mean, mainly because I don't do much except go to work and, you know, that's it. Yeah, well, I know I was just yeah. saying, I mean, as far as my working life is concerned, it's, it, it's very, I mean, I, I work on my own most of the time. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't go to work. I, you know, I, I live on the. You are work, yeah. Live, live over the shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, um, uh, I, I would, I would dearly love to have a look at what the buildings that you're building. I reckon they'd be extraordinary. One of the things that I've always in, admired is the way your design and making philosophy just becomes full circle. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can articulate that a little bit better than I'll be able to. And, you know, the, the, using the technology, steam bending, using materials that are very young and always renewed and making furniture that's comfortable and strong. And is that something you can talk to me about? I mean, I know you're not doing it so much now, but... Well, no, but what's interesting, of course, is the buildings are the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still, but except for the fact <laughs> that the 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 chair observation, you know, about flexible structures, uh, can't apply to buildings in the same way. Is that because of the scale of the building? It's it's also because the, uh, I mean, to some extent, with smallish buildings, like houses, by the time you've got the cladding and the insulation up to scratch. And again, particularly bearing in mind our climate here, mm. the structural thing is is already solved. Yeah. There isn't a structural problem with buildings because the problem, if there is one, is developing the right exterior membranes, as it were. That what you're after is the climatic performance. By the time you've answered that one, there's nothing very much in the way of a structure showing. Mm. If you saw what I mean. Mm. So, for instance, the the and it's not quite. It isn't quite true. It is possible to to separate the structure from the uh, the, the insulation and the and the, 
skin of the building, but it's very expensive. The, having got the skin of the building, overwhelmingly the case is, the, the fact is that that is going to be adequate to support mm. the building. You haven't got to worry about the mm. structure, which is one of the reasons that, uh, and, and structure is sexy, and cladding isn't. <laughs> so you've got a problem there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That, that, so if you look at most large modern buildings that you admire, or that, you know, that are good, what you're looking at is structures mostly, and not cladding. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at domestic buildings, firstly, that the you have this phenomena where if it's only two stories or three stories, the structure is almost irrelevant. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very easy to get that right. Yeah, lightweight, um, strong, yeah. It's, it's going to be strong one more, one more time. You haven't really got to, if, you know, haven't got to worry about it too much. That's, that's easy. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit of a challenge for somebody like me because you haven't got the structures to depend on. I mean, with furniture, particularly uh, not carcass furniture, but chairs and tables, this structure... Not always, but if going about it my way, the structure is the language yeah. to a huge extent. You know, that yes, you can ornament it, decorate it, you can have, you know, you can, there's all sorts of things you can do to it. But the core, the vocabulary, as it were, is there in the structure. Yeah. And the structure is more interesting because it's more demanding than a building. Building's a little bit more like a wardrobe or something, but um, by the time you've got something to hang the clothes on and yeah, you've the got already the, done. the yeah. light and the dirt out all yeah. around it, you've got a box, and yeah. the box is strong because it's a box, yeah. and it's not very interesting because it's a box. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you end up with you know giving it some sort of ornamentation on the doors That's or whatever it. you do, or you... Yeah. Bit of a gable here, yeah. Yeah, you do something like that, but it's it's sort of, um, it's almost irrelevant. You know, it's still Mm. this lump stuck against the wall somewhere or other. And yes, you can make it, it can be, you know, book leaf veneers or a whole lot of things you can do with it, which makes you go, but it doesn't actually change the, the nature of it very much. It doesn't make the, doesn't make the solution more interesting, really. It is, it, you know, it's, it's decorative, and that's it's, which either ruins it or makes it wonderful, depending on how good, it, how well it's done, what your perspective is on these things. Mm. So, what I'm trying to do with these, but it, uh, you're probably not aware of something. There's something called. I don't, I don't know how it isn't just European, but it could well be that it has nothing to do with your climate. But um, there's something called passive hoose, which is a German uh, set of values. Have you come across that? No, not by those okay. words. Most architects here don't. Uh, they're driven by building regulations. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's probably the and case. And building here regulations too. go up. In fact, my buildings are, are way ahead of building regulations. They're much, much better insulated, and yeah. they're much more draft-proof. Yeah. Anyway, the thing with passive house is that it's um, something which has become a standard, and that the, the the limiting factor, as I see with it, I mean, I, I think it's, it's great that someone's put sort of the effort into it, uh, and I've used a lot of its detailing. It has an absolute maximum amount of window because the thing with windows is that they 
you, you get solar gain through them mm. and you get thermal loss through them. Mm. For my money, the, the downside is you end up with this thing which has got little windows and it could be, could be anything, really. You know, it looks like a very boring little house, by and large. Mm. What I love about my building, and I'm standing in front of it right now, is that the whole of the south elevation is glazed. Yeah. And that I look out, and it does have a nice view. It's a sort of, it's a bit of woodland, and there's a rest of the industrial estate, which is fine. And it, I can see the sky. I can see the horizons, east and west and south. Mm. And it makes me feel liberated. It's, it, it, there's a sort of a, that I feel I'm, you know, I'm, I am one with what's going on out there. And this is something which doesn't happen with passive hoos. Mm-hmm. And I've taken this very seriously, that the sense of being in this thing, which is throwing itself open to the outside world, as opposed to being something which has the equivalent of lace curtains in front of the windows, as mm. it were, yeah. is all the difference in the world. I mean, it's both that it makes me feel and other people who come into it and ask me to make do it for them, yeah. it makes me feel much more sort of animal and human. Yeah. And also, of course, it means you don't have to have any lights on, mostly. During the and, day, yeah. During the day. And what I'm doing is taking the heat, this is the excessive heat, yeah. and I'm storing it in 12,000 litres of water under the floor. Is that right? And that is being... Uh, that is the thermal mass of the building. Uh-huh. In fact, on the next buildings... I'm not doing it quite like that. It just happens. I mean, I'm, I'm fiddling, you know, and that the thermal mass in the, the main building I'm doing, the thermal mass is in the structure, yeah. um, in the interior, interior structure. With my building, it is it has a very low thermal mass all around. It's got virtually no concrete. That's absolutely you know, sort of really, really limited because concrete is not good stuff environmentally cement is dreadful okay so anyway it's then this heat can then be released and you know the thermal mass doesn't got to be water it's actually the the next buildings I do will have some water storage but the main one I'm doing I'm doing one which is which is going to be absolutely splendid which is a lot more ambitious than the other two that will have some water storage water heat storage is going to have a lot more thermal mass. A lot of this compensates for the fact that it's got these big big windows you've got to find. Yeah. But anyway, what I'm fiddling around with is ways of insulating the windows, ways of the main yeah. thing at the moment, which is, is easily done, but I didn't do it in this building. I had underestimated when I did this building how efficient and how effective <laughs> it was going to be and that my problem was actually going to be overheating, not overcooling. <laughs> But yeah. the lowest temperature this building's got to without burning any fossil fuel at all in any in any way is 16 degrees. Yeah, well, When that's... it's been, say, minus two or three outside. Yeah. So it does work. Yeah. Is the, is the water that you're storing potable? Like, is it is it 
it also no. drinking? No, you, it's a storage. No, 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 no. That's actually separate. Uh, I've got water storage tanks. There are two buildings, and the water storage, which is water harvesting, is referred to as that does the lavatories and the washing machine. Yeah. Which is about half the water consumption. The water that's in the tank under the floor doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It's in a, a rubber bag, which is welded, and it has a sort of a, like a cuff in the middle, which is where the uh, things go down into it, which are, which are pipes. And the water, it has... There's no air in it because the bag is inflated by the water. Mm. And there, in it, there are coils, and they either put the heat in or take the heat out, mm. or both. Mm. So the water that's there is there, and it stays there. It's got no light, and it's got no mm. oxygen anywhere near it. And it's got a bit of that uh, stuff you put in central heating systems mm. in it. Well, quite a lot of it, actually. And the main purpose of that is to stop it oxidizing. Yeah. Uh, which apparently is what's required. So, and I've, you know, I've, I've been into it from a couple of times to fiddle with it, and it's um, it's absolutely fine. There's there's no, you know, it's, it hasn't in any way deteriorated or, um, you know, nothing's happened to it. So th- that that doesn't say anyway. And the but the rest because I'm on an industrial estate. Of course, all the rest of my services are absolutely there. You know, I've got mm. three phase electric, and I've got you know best ball band, and all, you know, it's, it's a it's a it, it is an industrial <laughs> it's an industrial site. Yeah, and I have all the services that you'd expect. None of the noise, I hope. All the bed no, no, no. no. Well, yes, exactly. If I'm making it myself, a bit of it. Yeah, bit yeah. Of it, bit of it. No, I don't mind people doing things. No. No, I quite find it quite exhilarating, actually. Yeah, and look, it, it's it's just not even. It doesn't sound like it's even important to what you're doing there. My God, the water in the bag isn't mm. transported around the house, which is the way I imagined it probably would. You've got no a separate system for that. What happens? The water in the tank. The tank is insulated, and it sits underneath a suspended floor. The insulation on the top of the tank is can be varied. Like there are air vents which allow there to be a greater circulation of air and therefore the tank will lose its heat more quickly. And it loses its heat to the air downstairs. But it also, in front of the, on the upstairs, in front of the windows, there's a a slate-covered, first 1.2 metres, and inside that, yeah. that, that's got central heating pipes. Yeah. And that has a pump. Yeah. And that goes into the into a, a coil which is in the uh, in, in the tank. And that now the sun is shining. It's shining onto the floor. Yeah, warming it up. And that is both a a, a receiver, a collector, and an emitter. Yeah. So. That is that keeps it warm when it's cold, and it keeps it cooler when mm. it's when it's hot. Yeah. 
there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs fiddling with on this. I'm not suggesting that this is that this is totally refined, and it isn't. You know, there's, there's, uh, it's not without its problems. They're not they're not severe. The what happens in this case is that the so the heat the water is heated water in the tank is heated by the floor. Is also heated by a, a heat pump, which takes the hot air from the upstairs, and it takes the heat from the air and puts it back into the building, so it keeps the building cool, the, up, the upper part of it, mm. and it puts the heat down into the bag under the floor. So in the past few days, that has risen this, what it is, is 12 metric tons of water. Yeah. Yeah. That's raised that in the past few days when it's been sunny to from about 26 degrees C to over 30 degrees C. That's pretty warm. That's pretty warm. Now, that, that heat isn't all getting out, obviously. That's contained. Yeah. Because the other thing that happens is that heat rises, but it doesn't rise if the air above it is already that temperature. Mm. So it lets out much more heat when it's cold. Mm. Are you with me? It's sort of yep. self. Yep. The heat only rises if it's got something cold to rise into, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Love so physics. That's what I'm, it's good. Isn't it, yes. It? <laughs> that it's those. That's what I. I that, yeah, that's what interests me really. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's how a lot of it, a lot of it works by doing that, but it needn't be twelve tons of water. Water is good because, being fluid, it's easier to heat and it's easier to get the heat out of it. Mm. And it's got more specific heat. Specific heat of water is more than concrete and stone and bricks yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, right. By the same token, of course, what you then get involved with is, is the water and the plumbing and the, all of that lot. And what I'm doing with the, the later buildings is to have some of that effect by having a much higher mass within the building. Yeah. And that obviously makes sense. And the, the later buildings are, are doing just that. So, but, it's, but the principle is actually very, very simple. Yeah. It's very simple. You know, and, and the, the extreme of this, you know, the, where it differs, if you look at the vast majority of houses, buildings, and you stand inside them, and you say, "Where's south?" <laughs> and people haven't got a clue. In no. your case, north, obviously. It's north, yeah. But <laughs> you still can't, yeah, yeah. But the yeah, of course it does. Um, mm. The fact that that is a foreign question, you know, that nobody. <laughs> I know. At, you know, it's most mad. Oh, no. It's the same design, or and they're scattered around, and oh, it's all jolly nice. And you actually look at these bloody things, and you see that the wall that's got nothing on it at all except a chimney breast is south-facing. <laughs> and you think, well, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, in a sense why I'm starting. It's, it's just there. Yeah. You know, what do you want? The most important thing about a building as far as I'm concerned, which way is south? Yeah. yeah. Now, quite interestingly, there was something on the telly quite a long time ago, and it was a Philippe Stark was doing this thing about this house that he designed. And
and it was glazed all round, and there was no indication of which way was south. It it could have been anywhere, mm. and it, it's the fact that that something so fundamental mm. doesn't so impinge upon the consciousness of the person who's had more influence probably over the past forty years than almost anybody else tells you most of what you need to know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, where's this guy coming from? Where is this? Where is this, you know, this design-y world? Yeah. There are some things which are so fundamental yeah. to everybody. I mean, it's a bit, you know, like bias or the most, most basic things don't seem to be the things that are attracting the interests of designers. But that is exactly what design's about. If it ain't about that... You know, and one of the things which has been very, very, very confusing to my mind, and it's been there throughout my career, is this business, this the relationship between fine arts and design and craft. Mm. And I can see why it is that crafts have been edging their way towards fine arts. I mean, do I care about it one way or another? I don't really. Yep. But you better, um, you better tell us why, just because you can see why. Well, why is, I mean, yes, you can see why. But, but, and, and a lot of it, which is a little bit like what I was saying previously, is that if you, if you become a non-manufacturing country um, and you're not involved, no people are not involved in day-to-day in the doing of things, which by and large we're not. Well, it's not quite true, actually. I mean, you know, most of the people I know are builders, one way or another, because that's what you mm. do, isn't it? Mm. Which makes a great deal of sense. If, you've got, if you're of practical disposition, yeah. there's an endless requirement for plumbers and electricians and builders and all of that. And that's exactly what I'd be doing why I'm not doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. Know, so there's a, it's a practical application. From my point of view, design is an applied art and, it's, and the application is you know there's applied and there's art and the applied is equally as important as the art but the art bit as far as I'm concerned is is this the point it's it gets to be art if it is if it can embrace all these things and make you know find a visual language which says what it is, what it does, how it feels about, you know, for instance, I mean, you know, there, there are things that, I mean, one of the things I ask when I'm working on a design is, does the material want to be like this? Is this what this material wants to do? Yeah. For instance. What if it says no? Do you whack it around the head and say, you bloody better? Um, no, you don't. I know you don't. I'm only joking, David. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, but I think the, I think the material tells you a hell of a lot about the way it wants to be, yeah. and what it's um, you know what it wants to do and what it doesn't want to do, and it certainly doesn't want to be a Chippendale chair if it's a bit of wood. Yeah, you know, God. Why, would, why, why would it want to do that? We'll satisfy anyway. the king. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Applied arts and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Design. So anyway, we've been through all this. that number and I just I don't I don't think it's been useful to the crafts I think that the that craft is is something much bigger than the purely decorative and I'm not knocking the purely decorative 
No. I don't, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of interest to me, I have to say. I think that, that, that one of the snags with, I mean, it's too broad a term design, isn't it, really? It's, um, you know, there's a whole area of it, which, which is largely where the crafts world is, mm. which is about decoration, which is fine. It is about, it is about self-expression, sort of, I suppose. But that isn't the, that's, there's a whole other end of design, I think, and craft, therefore. Mm. And you can see it in something like the Babbage Difference Machine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That there's something which, there's things which, you can see it in, in, a, in a boat that goes well. You can see it in the bicycle which goes well. Yeah. You can see it in, you know, that it actually comes from an understanding, not just sort of the material, but what you're asking it to do. Yeah. You know, so if you, and I've, spent probably more time thinking about sitting than most other things and what is involved in that and what makes it a comfortable experience and all that. And one's trying to one's going deeper than the colour or, you know, whether that bit of mahogany looks good against this bit of maple or, you know, whatever you know, that's yeah. that, that's yeah, that's important. That's that's a consideration. But there are much more fundamental things, as far as I'm concerned, than that. And the other thing, it's a bit, well, it's, it's, it actually comes back against something I was saying previously, is that, and that, yes, it is very fundamental to the way I think about things, which is, and again, I said this to you last time we spoke on the phone, that yeah. self-expression, which is what most people are trying to do desperately, seriously, particularly in the world of crafts, you know, to find their slot and express themselves and be artists and be all this stuff. Mm. That isn't, that, that you don't have an option on that. Whatever you do, you'll be expressing yourself in it. And it could be what you're expressing is a bloody mess. <laughs> but it's still, an, you know. That Just the, because you have a go. Self-expression is, mm. yes. Mm. Self-expression is, is, not to have self-expression is not possible. You can tell by everything that you do, you know, even just everything. As you're cooking, I mean, how a mess is a kitchen? I mean, my kitchen is in a mess now from last night. But um, you, you haven't got to worry about self-expression. Mm. What you've got to concern yourself with is, is finding the core, as it were, mm. you know, of what, is, what really matters about this thing. And therefore, being the thing having a having a, 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 a purpose makes a huge difference. I find it very difficult to make things which haven't got a purpose, mm. really, because I, I lost there. Um, I think every everything has a purpose, even if it seemingly doesn't. Even a painting has a purpose. Yes, everything's got a purpose. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. But you, you're, you're talking about things that also perform in some way, things that have an action, a house. It, it exists for a reason that is to make a human comfortable and safe. Yes. And I would say field expansive. Field expansive. You know, to be... To be I, th- I think that, you know, the, uh, if there's any point in any of this designy stuff going on at all, it is to do with... Not just human comfort, but sort of cultural significance. It seems that's one of the yeah. um, one of your questions you wrote. You know, is about the sort of place in culture. 
Yeah, um, it yeah. does seem to me to be incredibly important. I think it's that, fundamental too, but you know, look, can you talk to that? Well, yes, only in the sense that it seems to me that... Yeah, let's, let's go way, 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 way back now to what you know, I was on about with Schumacher and all of that stuff, that as soon as you... The, the, there, there has been... I'm not saying this change has affected, has affected everybody, but from a, the intellectual perspective, that there has been a huge change in our perception of our place on the planet, you know, what's going mm. down. And it is generational. It happened in my case because I spoke to my dad about all this sort of stuff quite a lot. He was in advertising, as I uh, yeah. mentioned. And I always thought that that was a pretty rum world, really. And But at the same time, of course, it was what put the... Yeah, put the food on, on the, the table. table. Yeah. And my father was extremely aware of what life was like without it, because he'd really bloody yeah. done it. You know, he had been part of an extremely impoverished in all respects, you know, dietary and in all other respects. His upbringing was bloody awful. Mm. Um, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. But by the same token, I always thought that flogging too much stuff to people, and particularly when what he ended up doing was things like selling baby milk to Africans. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, uh, mm. uh, this was this was you know, towards the end of his career, and he knew what he was doing. Um, yeah, mm. there's other stuff which was less, you know, which was baby milk to British mothers. <laughs> anyway, um, well, mm. and we didn't talk a lot actually because we 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 didn't have the best of relationships. But his generation saw man's position and it would have been a man rather than a woman as well mm. and he wouldn't have thought about it that much but that our place on earth is to be the dominant species and that we're here to look after it sort of although this is very easily forgotten mm. and that we are the top of some sort of pinnacle and that we are not animals we're sort of above nature. We're closer to God than nature is or whatever. And not that he was a religious person. But that, that was a general feeling of that generation. This is, is, you know, that the world is ours to do what we want to do with it, which is what we've done. Yeah. I would say that, and that, I would say that that is a view, a worldview where the world's energy is infinite, that the, the, the world's market is, in, is infinite. And, of course, it felt like that in the 1950s and the 1960s. But the big change is to see, and, and, and to that extent, it's sort of absolute. There's an absolute truth about it. And it goes to religions as well, of course. I mean, religions, by and large, are pretty absolute. I mean, Christianity, you know, is the only, is the only one. For um, a Christian, it is. In those days. Yeah. And... You know that the that Christianity pretty much teaches that you know, Jesus came along in man's image and you know all of that. That but the huge and, and so it is. It is absolute. The huge change is when you realise that 
that things are relativistic, they're not absolute, that mm. the consequences of what you do matters, that it changes mm. things. Nothing happens without causing a change somewhere, mm. and that change may be good or it may be bad. And that is relative, this is relativistic. And I've, not that I think it's a particularly, I've no doubt I could be cut down on this one, but very broadly speaking, it seemed to me that the beginning of the modern movement was, it pretty much all happened after the general theory of relativity. And that, but it was, there was something absolute about about the modern movement. You know, there was a truth. There was a there was yeah. you know, there was a way of doing things. And yeah, that, that's the way it seems uh, like, now. Mm. Yes, mm. and that it's interesting that, that that philosophically, what was going on at the time was actually realizing that absolutes weren't around anymore, mm. and that it took. Well, from my perspective, it took until uh, you know things like Buckminster Fuller do the mostest with the leastest. He recognised that it's relativistic, as indeed the Schumacher, as indeed the Zen and the Auto Motorcycle Incidents, mm. Persig, and then there's a whole load of other books written at the same time, which were looking at the similarities between Oriental thought mm. and contemporary physics. Mm. Well, not that I understood most of this, it has to be said. But the thing with Oriental thoughts of Buddhism and all of those things is that they tend to be relativistic mm. rather than absolute. And, of course, the thing with, with physics is it's relativistic now, post-Einstein. It's not absolute. Where... I was finding I was trying to break with the modern movement and where this you know, other thing happened was that what happens if you, when you feed in this relativistic thing and you feed in these ideas, you still keep the same, uh, 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 to a huge extent, you keep a lot of the values of modernism, mm. which basically are, are egalitarian and that, you know, that there's a fair amount of common sense about it. What, they, what it didn't take into account in the Bauhaus days, uh, nor indeed in, in you know, what we now think of, of mid-century modern. It was a different time. You know, we had a whole bunch of new materials, we had a whole bunch of new wealth, and that we had the potential for a much less divided society. Didn't materialize, obviously. But th that was the promise, and that's what drove that. <clears throat> but the thing to add to that, as soon as you get into anything like ecology, your interrelative ideas. And they are, I find they're much more interesting for one thing. Yeah. They're not absolute. And that's sort of what, that's how I got into it. And that's where I still am. Yeah. In a way, that's what I'm, I can't even remember where I began on this one. But that's what, that's what I find interesting is, you know, that that's where I want to take it. That's what I want to be doing with my things. Mm. So that the buildings business I mean, merely, well, the first thing about the building business is that's what people have knocked on my door and asked me to do. They haven't been asking me to make them six chairs. <laughs> um, which, yeah, so I, that's what yeah, I'm doing. That's right. Which is, which is well, exactly right up your alley. So it's a win-win. Well, it, it is. Yeah. It is. 
I think that's what creative people do. They follow it, following the market's not really the right way, but not not only do you follow your your passions, but you also do what people ask you to do. Well, you see, I haven't done that. I have to say, I, um, I've been. You haven't, and that's why your story is very interesting. But in a way, you have. Like what you've done is made things for people. They've asked you for things, but you've approached the problem of what they're asking you in your own way, with your own ideals, and that has shone through right from the go get in all your all your work. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, what I would. I mean, anything to add to that, you know, from my sort of side of the whole thing is that it's been profoundly unsuccessful. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, the but, you know, from the point of view of it being, I mean, it wasn't what I had in mind. No, I had yeah. in mind that, that, yeah. that, um, that, that uh, this would be, you know, at, th- at this point, what I would have would be something which was up and running and that I could mm. retire from slightly and keep an interest in it, but there would be something there. That never happened, uh, and uh, it, it has never been. There's nothing lasting about it from the point of view of its organisation. Yes, the designs are there. I mean, again, of course, you know what people are more interested in is actually the, is the early designs rather than the most recent ones, and that yeah, really is uh, the other reason for not really wanting to do it. I can make those C2 leather seated directors chairs. Mm. I can, you know, I got people interested in them, but I'm not actually interested in making them. No. I, mean, I do make them from time to time, and I might make some more when the buildings dry up. But um, right now, it's the other ones. It's the, it's the riveted stuff, which is overwhelmingly more interesting to me. As a, you know, it's more yeah. comfortable, and it is, it's, it's much, much more interesting. Visually, it's much more interesting. Technically, it's much more interesting. It's more comfortable. It's got absolutely everything going for it. Mm. But, but it's much more difficult to sell. It's not as accessible aesthetically. It isn't as accessible. No. no. And that's part of the reason, actually, that I've, I've embraced the buildings bit, yeah. as I have with great enthusiasm, because yeah. I haven't got traction on the other side. I mean, I've sold some of it, heaven's sake. Yes, I've clearly sold some of it. But not enough to make it. The thing with batch producing, have you even got involved with batch producing stuff? Yeah, look, I have, batch absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you find the same thing with this? Actually, the trouble with it is that the trouble with batch producing stuff is that you've got the product before you've got the market. <laughs> I think Don't that you? is part of the big problem. And yeah. I think the solution is to have a team where you've got the marketing expert, you've got the making expert, and you've got the design expert, and you get them all in yeah. one room and you get them working together towards the common I goal. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, and at this end of the tunnel, I, you know, what I realise is that I, that is a team I never managed to put together. Yeah. And the when you, you know, looking at your title, Design and Make a Revolution, it seems to me that that's what it has failed to achieve. <laughs> is that not true? Oh, look, I think I think designing and making things is so incredibly marginal when you're trying to push boundaries yes it's a it's a marginal exercise um yes. and making things these days in the digital world that we live in it's the reasons to do it has changed hmm. yeah funda- yeah fundamentally changed when our parents 
your 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 parents would have made something because they couldn't afford it for instance in australia in the 50s and 60s there was a whole a whole bunch of people that built their own houses because it was the only way they could afford it and that was yes. what that was what happened yes these days those reasons don't exist people make things and are very interested in making things even designing things because they want to because they choose to because it's an awesome thing to do making things with your hands and your mind is a human trait that's fundamental in my opinion yes yeah Uh, and i think designing and making things in a bigger production sense lots of things will be made without a human touch that's probably already here and if it's not it's going to be here that's a new thing and yet humans are still going to want to design and make things they still really enjoy it but the reasons to do it are very different now that's interesting yeah and design and make a revolution is it a revolution in the sense of revolving back to the start don't know is it a revolution in terms of is it going to change the world don't know where it, it, it's a it's a journey it's a pathway it's something where it's unfolding okay can i run something past you yeah which occurs from that which is that yes i, I know just what you're saying and clearly that happens here as well that you know that you know, there are people who clearly you know that, that making things is, is a is a is really highly therapeutic and it's, it's great. But it seems to me that the other, there's that aspect of craft making things, which I'm inclined to think, to sort of say, well, it keeps them off the streets. <laughs> um, the, other, the other. That's thing okay if it that, does. <laughs> no, it, it does, absolutely, yeah. But the other thing that goes on is that culturally, uh, we, we are changing. There yeah. is a change going on. Yeah. And it goes on, and the purpose of art, to some, so there's one purpose of art and design and craft, which is keeping off the streets. There's another part of it, oh, there's another part of it as well, of course, which is, to, which is, which is flattering other people's egos. You know, how uh, much did this cost? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. That's it's not going to go away, but yeah, that's definitely... It isn't going to go away, no, mm. no, no. no. There's a, the other uh, part of it is that we have this, as a culture, particularly at times of very great change, and I put now down as a time of very great change, and the need to accommodate it and to develop languages which explain it and make it acceptable, and this is going to have an impact on the things around us. Part of it's technical, as you're saying, is that you know, there's the, the, the digital world. But there's also, say, our attitude towards the environment, mm. which is, you know, which wasn't known. People weren't interested in that at all 50 years ago. And that the culture that we have has to, has to keep pace with that somehow. Mm. And there's bound to be a cutting edge of that culturally. And that that is a purpose uh, for the designer maker. Not the purpose, a purpose. Mm. That's, and that's why I do it, because I'm interested in the, interested 
is in change and how that change and how do you express that change so that you know that the as far as in my tiny 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 little world which started off by being interested in plastics and steel because they were new and exciting mm. and that when I looked at the consequences of all this, I thought, oh, I, you know, I could see this mm. thing coming up. The stuff that's going to come off tops on this is bloody wood. <laughs> and, oh, God, no. You know, I spent yeah. an awful long time trying to avoid it. And, but it, being, it became unavoidable that if you take into, into it the consequences of its use, everything about it, and the people like it as well, of course, which I didn't, but most people did. You know, given, do you want a plastic chair or a wooden chair? They'd have a wooden chair. Yeah. And I came to think, well, there's probably, there might be something in this. Yeah. But it was mainly just the fact that, you know, that the growing the stuff uh, absorbed the atmospheric carbons and it was yeah. coming across ash. This is the ash, the tree. Yes, yes. Yeah. Coming across that and seeing what a fantastic material it is. Yeah. Um, but it was actually, it, it was not about the fact of its color or its grain or anything like that. You know, if I could have chrome plated it in the early days, I'd have done so probably. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, um, no, I, I exaggerate, I exaggerate. But um, it was, uh, the, the requirement, the requirement was forced on me in a way that you couldn't, seri you couldn't look at plastic and think well, this is a jolly good idea when you've got something which did the job as well or better yeah. nothing like the same and people liked it nothing yeah. like the same carbon footprint yeah look horses for courses we're not going to make electrical wire out of pieces of wood but if you want to make a chair you've got the right material exactly wood is exactly. awesome yeah. yes so tell me how i got into that one <laughs> yeah, no, it's just this, this thing of, of, of cultures, and yeah. that, that it seems to me is where there's most innovation is done in a craft mode, yeah. including writing software and all of that stuff. And writing software being a craft and a skill. Yes. Mm. Yes, right. I mean, I think the dividing craft and skill is is something which I'd be reluctant to do. I think <laughs> maybe, yeah. Yeah, skills. What I would define pretty much anyone that makes anything at all, ever, as a designer and maker, and uh, somebody that writes software, somebody that makes films, somebody that's uh, a musician, all designer makers in my mind. Yes, yes. And I've always been impressed by the fact that whereas I would be reluctant to, or at least, no, I wouldn't be reluctant, I do use the word my craft, Mm. But most people in the physical world don't. They find that a, a difficult thing to come to terms with. But you talk to a to a writer, and they'll talk about their craft. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's, it's, it's that is the way I like to understand craft. Yeah, that's right. Craft with a capital C inverted commas, or design with a capital C inverted commas, is invariably boring. It's yes, it, and that's what you're talking about. It's just yes. really not that interesting. What is interesting is doing something that solves a problem really, really well. It's beautiful, that's comfortable, that does what it was intended yes. to do. And plenty of designers get caught up in just style 
and plenty of craftspeople can get caught up in just material. And it'd be yeah. probably probably better if they just sort of spread their wings a little bit and actually really solve a problem. Completely, yes. And this is the trouble, in a sense, it seems to me, of, of separating design from making. Or anything from anything. Or I mean, anything from anything. If we're going to be relativistic, then we're all in it together. And Yes, yes. But also, the, the, but the other thing that happens in the, the craft end of things is that given the nature of uh, the number of people actually who, who are very concerned about what a chair looks like, which, which is very, very few. Um, <laughs> the, well, it is, isn't it? Uh, you know. Do you know well, anybody that buys a chair cares what it, cares what it looks like? Uh, okay. Okay. But, uh, yeah, okay. They may not want to be challenged by it. They don't want to be no. They they care. Yeah, they want it to look a particular way that that's been seen before. Yes, and what they'll be buying into mostly is a cultural norm. So right now, it's in Britain and Europe, or Britain particularly, it's it's mid-century modern, and I'd be surprised if it wasn't the same in Australia. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Retail shops. Most of that stuff could have been designed in 1950 something. Mm, It's actually. Look, I, I don't follow it, but that style has come and gone, more or less. Has it? I think so. Mm, that look, so what's um, it been replaced with? Oh, David, I don't really know, to be honest. But, I mean, it's still favoured highly, but it hasn't, it hasn't got the legs that it did maybe 10 years ago. Partly well, because... Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, partly because all of that, uh, mid-century modern has been bought and sold and anyone who wanted it's got it and anyone who doesn't want it. I got you. Yeah. Got you. It's just, yeah. just a standard fashion movement thing. Yes. It would be very interesting to see what's, uh, what's certain. But certainly here, I mean, it's a, it's a bit modified from that, but it's, um, it's still... I would still suggest that the beginnings of any uh, any change is not going to happen in the mass market if it's something like furniture. No. If it's something like inventing the iPhone. Yes. Yeah. Look. If you have a different purpose. Yeah. And that that is where there is a justification for small scale production because it isn't the culture isn't yet ready for large scale production. Mm. And that's in a way that's where the arts live it seems to me mm. but they don't need to lose sight of the fact and that the world would be a, a better place if they were taken more notice of you know that if that having a, having a, and a particularly in Britain right? I mean you actually if you look at what is available the way people live it doesn't relate to the problems that we face as I see them they are, it's sort of, it's independent, you know, it's a different, it, it's the people's aspirations, that nothing is inspiring people. Well, <clears throat> no, this isn't quite true. Some people are inspired to do it, which is why they're asking me for houses. <laughs> um, but by and large, it's, it, there's a gap between what 
most people's aspirations are. Most people's aspirations are fed by the media, by various things, and it lags behind what is best practice, as it were, mm. given the circumstances that we, that, you know, that, that we now are in. That's what the crafts are for me. It's, it's simply small-scale production, and it's small-scale production because mm. the market isn't big enough for it mm. to be other than that. Yeah. Therefore, the price can't get lower, and the price. Of, you know, if you actually look at the costs, and we did this when I was at Tran, you know, looking at the what our budgets needed to be, and that the half the cost of making something was flogging it, <laughs> one way or another, in terms of the staff employed, their time, the yeah. amount of money we spent on exhibitions, the amount of all of these things. Mm-hmm. That of the price of a chair, uh, it had to be doubled on manufacturing cost because yeah. that's what it costs to sell it. Yeah, and that is the that's the that's the rub really. Whereas if what you're making is a you know is an Andy Jacobson one of them Christian Keeler chairs that sort of thing, mm-hmm. which is which are everywhere and everybody's making them. Then the, you know it's already been established. You know, thank you, Arnie Jacobson. Um, <laughs> and fifty years, more than fifty years, seventy years later, they're selling like hotcakes. Mm. Or indeed, you know, the other one which sells like hotcakes, because are those ones which look like uh, Charles Eames with the wooden legs. And you can't, you know, here you can't go past a cafe which hasn't got either of those two designs in it. And mm. the Eames one is the one that there now is, which of course isn't Eames. And it's got wooden legs just to soften us all up a bit. But th- that's that's the way design works. And not only that, and they're nine ninety nine or whatever they are, you know? Mm. So that is where design sits, it seems to me, and the crafts sit in there. Not exclusively, but the area of the crafts which interests me is the area which is it is socially engaged and it could it sees itself my work. I mean, I would love it if Tannen would have been a, a prosperous company and it could have afforded to do all the things that would be really d- desirable for it to do. You know, so you know, at one end that it had a pension scheme, at the other end <laughs> that it was profitable enough to do some genuine research and development. Yeah. But the reason I stopped it was largely because I could see that it wasn't going to make enough money to take the argument forward. No. Um, you know, we weren't, we didn't have the volumes, yeah. and we certainly didn't have the volumes to develop the, you know, this, this, um, the no saw. You know, we simply, we struggled to pay the bills at the end of the week, yeah. and we struggled to pay ourselves um, adequate, mm-hmm. adequately for, you know, the situation we had, which was families with children. Yeah. Um, yes, you know. We came through the other end of it, but it wasn't. It 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 it, it never caught on. We never got people who wanted to sell it retail, yeah. in spite of wanting them to do so. We, we it never did it. It never, and and some of that was some of that was because you know it it was it was still the age of irony, and I, mean, I think now if I had the energy right now. I think I can make it work. Yeah, with the new with the new things. Because the other thing about the you know a lot of what I realised with the Tranon stuff was that 
I could see where we were going. The next investment was going to be a multiple ripsaw. Yeah. And then the next investment would have been a, you know, a four-sided planer. Yeah. And then the next investment would have been you know, more extraction equipment. Apart, of course, from the you know um, occupational pensions and all the other things mm. that we had to do, mm. and I thought, well, that's just going down the same route as everybody else's. We we would very soon have you know a much bigger energy bill. We'd be we'd we'd have more capital equipment. We would have had fewer people making it, and that that wasn't really what I was interested in. You know, yeah. we wanted, I wanted to be further on than that. I wanted to you know, get past the point that Urkel had got to, for instance. Mm. And, you know, that cutting out the... And, and the way I was doing it, you know, was cutting out the sanding, mm. doing this bandsaw trick, doing all that, which took... But I, that couldn't have been afforded... That was afforded because I wasn't running a company. I didn't have those overheads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, you know, it's I suppose one of the snags I've had is that you know is always wanting to be the next phase on, and it took so long to get recognition for things. Probably you know if I put the effort in at the time to selling C twos, um, yeah, that might have been a different matter. Oh God. Yeah, mm. look, you, you, you're not following your market. You're following your personal philosophy, and you're pushing Absolutely. you're pushing the boundaries of that market continually. And that's yes. that's not what the bank manager is asking you to do. No, exactly. The bank manager is asking you to, hey, look, this chair's selling. Make that. Yes. I, I don't no, understand exactly right. why you I, wouldn't I do that. <laughs> frankly, yes, no, exactly. Uh, I mean, everything yeah. you say is correct, and I, and I can so easily see. How it is that it that it you know that it yeah. fails as a business? Look, um, it it, it hmm. I, I would perhaps argue that it succeeded in what it set out to do for many years. It succeeded at one level. It succeeded, but it failed to it failed to do what I had in mind when I started. Mm. But it, to a certain extent, that's not your fault. No, I think I think it isn't my fault. I think the I think the only the the fault, if there is one, my fault, if there is one, is not to be a great deal more cynical about the nature of the buying public. Maybe uh, or maybe flexible would be a better word. to know. I should be more flexible. Yeah. Very likely. Yeah. Just wondering. I look, I, it's not for me to say. I'm just saying it's a, maybe. Uh, I, I'm trying to uh, put a. A positive light on this because I think it's so inspiring, personally. Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, it, that you know that, that it, I'm not saying it is unsuccessful all round by any means. Yeah. What I'm saying is from you know that from what I thought originally, would I have? I didn't. I never intended to be involved in the in the craft world. No, you know that it, is, it is sort of where it was positioned, though, isn't it? It's where it's positioned because it didn't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. That was really it. That at the point that I couldn't find a manufacturer, and yeah. I was, oh, I was terribly patriotic to it. I did think that it possibly <laughs> my sort of, you know, the working class background. But yeah. um, the thing that I couldn't face somehow. I mean, I I thought I wanted to do it in Britain. Yeah. It was important that it was done in Britain. 
one of your things is, you know, what mistakes did you make? What's your biggest? My biggest mistake was was just that I should have not necessarily physically moved, but certainly got involved with European manufacturers yeah. and not wanted to uh, have it made here. Yeah, and that was that was stupid, really. Um, that was really, really silly because I did have options. I did have options and I yeah, should have taken them. Yeah. And it would have involved being almost anywhere but Britain. You know, because what I had seen, as anybody of my age living in Britain who'd got their eyes open, um, what one would have been aware of is, was this in industrial decline. Mm. Really, from... From my earliest memories, really, you know, because mm. I, I said, you know, I had sort of uncles and cousins and people who, you know, were working in factories, one sort or another, and, you know, doing stuff. That, the same's um, happened here yeah. in Australia, David. I wonder how it is in Britain right now with the COVID nineteen. But there is a conversation going around here that says, well, why would we want to? allow all our manufacturing to go off sea, overseas, why don't we keep some of this here? Well... Is that um, is that conversation happening that you can... It is. It is. And it was happening before before this, this, this virus. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, insofar as one can talk to people about this. Um, <laughs> and I was on the optimistic side of it all, thinking, well, that... It could well be that well, what I was actually saying was that, that, that for God's sake, please, can something good come out of this? Yeah. And what good could come out of it would be to abandon uh, the sort of globalization at this scale. And what really, we've, we've of course, it's, the radio's been absolutely full of it, and um, your Australian national radio station is very much modeled on our Radio 4 which is a sort of speech intelligent mm. thing where mm-hmm. and I listen to it endlessly. Mm-hmm. And even before this, there was a movement away from, you know, f- from everything coming from China. But so what, what I found was listening to the, something called the food program, you know, what's the consequence of this, of this going to be? And it turns out that half the garlic that we eat comes from China. Of course it does. <laughs> I mean, what? you know, garlic grows everywhere. You know, yeah. I can grow garlic. I've done it. Why? <laughs> Why would you grow it in China? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of, I mean, some things you can sort of see. Okay, it's a printed circuit board or it's a, mm. you know, it's a mobile phone or it's a whatever it is. Yeah, okay, that they've got off their arse and they've done it and we haven't. Or, you know, that they're the British people won't work for that kind of money or, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why some things wouldn't get, you know, we wouldn't make things here. Oh, we're just too lazy. But garlic, you know, it's just, I, I, I thought, it was, I mean, at, at least buy it from France or Spain. <laughs> but half of our garlic comes from China. With all, and you, at which point you've gone, this has got to be crazy, man. This is just, you know, this does not make sense. And of course, it doesn't make sense. And I think there's a whole bunch of that that has been going on. And I think a lot of stuff's going to come out in the wash, actually. Mm. And there is going to be a there's there's bound to be an awful lot of people that fall out the bottom of this with you know companies who uh, uh, and a sort of a vacuum. It seems to me, 
ready for a vacuum because you know most of the systems that we use have turned out to be have big downsides you know like globalization capitalism has its downside Socialism. which is that you know we catch diseases from the Chinese <laughs> you know it had to happen it could have come from anywhere though don't you think it could have come from anywhere but the, but but traveling moving that fast yeah you know and that now I mean today in fact it's cloudy here but I have hardly seen an airplane vapor trail no they disappeared yeah and it's wonderful um, yeah. you know, it's a real rarity to see a, 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 a vapor trail and you think well I suppose, you know, that's off to pick up some people from a cruise in the <laughs> you know off a cruise ship or something yeah. but it does happen so I'm on the one hand I'm, I'm quite optimistic but the other thing I've been thinking is that for God's sake if I've, you know, if I've got some energy to put somewhere which I'm not sure I have the place to put it in is to try and make God I'm sure that you know, that there is movement and we don't mm. go back to what we had previously. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that where you're putting your energy into these buildings that you're building is a jolly good spot to continue to put it. It's something that holds your passion. It's something you can develop. And, um, you know, it's one step fighting the good fight. No, indeed, indeed. But it would be, I mean, I have been wondering, actually, but there's been a lot of, there's some, I mean, I'm not very good at chasing it, but there's there's money being spent here uh, with, you know, protecting industry. Mm. God knows how it's going to be paid back for. And it has, I have been wondering, should I be angling to try and find a bit of it in order to set up, not for me, you know, but just a, a furniture company mm. without me running it? But you know, something a bigger group. Maybe the time is right, and I, I might explore that because it could be that now is the time to be doing what I've been trying to do forever. But I'm, I, I haven't got the energy, so you know, I couldn't do it again from the beginning. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to. And I, I, you know, what I have learned is that there's a bunch of stuff I'm really, really, really crap at, and to run a successful company you need not to be crap at that you've got to be there's huge weaknesses and I think that's the you know that that with my definition as I understand the bit of designer maker I've got into which is like an alternative manufacturer as it were uh, it's what you're suggesting uh, that you know it's a group activity Uh, you know that would really be wonderful that that is just what that's what I'd anticipated that I'd be involved with mm. had you asked me, you know, as a, as a young person. But there's, I don't think there's any examples of that that's happened here that, 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 that's been successful, even in spite of the fact, I mean, it takes something like OMK, who made metal chairs, as you may remember, that, that they didn't last. Nobody actually came out the end of any of that. Mm. In all of that enthusiasm, but OMK, you know, were a partnership. They were, they were successful for a while, but finally they're not still there. You know, they they haven't become another Urkel. They haven't forged anything permanent, which is interesting. It's a hard uh, job. Um, yes. Just like yeah. life. Just like what? Just like life. It's a hard job. Yes, 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 yes. 
David, we have had the most amazing conversation. I'm so, it's been so awesome. I thank you. I thank you so much. We've, I've had oh. the best fun. And well, I, I wish we were sitting on the opposite side of the table with a bottle of wine between yeah, us. Yeah, but there you go. There you go. Next time, maybe we, another time. We've got a virtual bottle of wine, so. Right. <laughs>